bum 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 for dang and dang dang for ding and dong ding blue moon 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 blue moon dip 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 moon moon Welcome to the Circuit Clouts podcast, the official podcast of United League Baseball, fine purveyors of fake baseball since 1951. The baseball is fake, but the podcast is real. Nice. Yeah. All right. So we have Glenn Reed with us. We're going to take a look at the 1961 and 1964 United League World Series, which was a unique era in UL history where we had two dominant teams, one from the East, the Brooklyn Superbas, one from the West, the Chicago Colts, and they met each other in the World Series four years in a row. And not only that, but there was the exact same result four times in a row. Brooklyn winning series four games to one. So it's, I call this the, uh, there's a couple of terms for this. It's the Groundhog Day era, right? Same result year after year after year. Um, and there's an argument to be made that these are maybe the two best teams of all time, but Chicago had the misfortune of being the second best team of all time, coterminous or contemporaneously <laughs> contemporaneous, with, yeah. with the number one team of all time. So I call it the Phil Mickelson of the UL, right? Basically the Dude, second nice. best. Second best of all time, but unfortunately, like sitting next to the big bro. And actually, they are the big bro because it's Brooklyn. So joining us with today, the first segment, we're going to talk with Glenn Reed, who was the manager of the Brooklyn Superbas from, I think, I want to say 1952 to 1964. So a good 12 years. Before we get started, we just want to talk a little bit about why we picked this and just to give a little historical context. So if you look at the history of the UL, you will see that Brooklyn, in fact, won eight East Division pennants in a row from 57 to 64. They won nine out of 10 if you count the 66 season. So um, when we think about UL dynasties, it's really Brooklyn and then everyone else, right? But we're specifically focusing on those latter four years because that's when we had this great Superbus Colts rivalry. And we, you know, we can get into the question of what is, was it really a rivalry if the same team wins every year? But, um, but uh, <laughs> it felt like a rivalry. It at felt the time, like it, it sure yeah, did. Yeah, like, and, yeah. and, and, and to be fair, every year going into this, we obviously didn't know that Brooklyn was going to win each time, right? So in 1962, it comes around like, oh, it's a rematch. Maybe Chicago will win this year. Nope, Brooklyn yeah. wins. So in 63, it's like, okay, they meet for the third time. Maybe this is Chicago's year. Well, didn't work out that way. So we're going to so we, we're going to try to approach this from the perspective of the of the era. So we thought the best way to do that would be to kind of like take a look at where the league was and where these teams were after the 1960 season going into 1961. So I'll give a little historical context here to kind of put things, to frame things. And then I'll kick it over to Glenn and we'll talk a little bit about like the philosophy or kind of the moves that made um, the Brooklyn team of those years. So does that sound good? Yeah, we're all bringing it on. All right. So the first thing to note is that there was no World Series until 1957, right? So uh, league started with eight teams. We played a regular season and whoever came in first was declared the champion. In 1955, we added LA and San Francisco. So we had 10 teams in 55 and 56, same format, just a 10 team regular season wins the title. It wasn't until 1957 that we split the league into two divisions, five teams in each division and, and had the seven, you know, best of seven playoffs. So that first year, 1957, Brooklyn won the East. St. Louis, who, who I was managing at the time, won the West. Brooklyn wins the first World Series, all right? So it turns out that was the first of eight straight East Division pennants for Brooklyn. But what happened was in 58 and 59, you had a couple of heartbreaking losses, yep. I believe both of them in seven games. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, yeah. So the Louisville Colonels. Um, it was seven games, extra innings in the, in the San Francisco series. Yes, exactly. Yeah, this is horrific, um, yeah. What was the guy's name? Jim, Jim, Jim Lemon, bro. Jim Lemon. Yeah, yeah, Jim yeah. Lemon, I think had like a 14th yeah. inning home run or something. Yeah, like there that. you so go. Yeah. That was a huge upset. So, yeah. Um, and then in night, so that, so you lost those two series, 58 and 59. And then in 1960, you won again against Louisville. So kind of like, um, 
kind of a revenge rematch of the 58 series. So that sets us up for going into the 1961 season. So just some broad context. So I'm just looking at the, the history tab here where we have like the major award winners. So one thing I'll note right off the bat is that Gene Connolly was, he was a three-time Cy Young winner. He won the Cy in 57, 59, and 1960. So you'll hear a lot about Gene Connolly as we talk about these uh, various right, World right. Series. But he was he was the main guy. I mean, he won three out of four Cy Youngs going into the 1961 season. And then we should also note Granny Hamner. So Granny Hamner ended up with four MVPs. He had two of them by now. He had 57 and 59, and he was about to win two more, 61 and 62. So those are, so we're going to, so part of the story is the teams, right? We've got the Colts and the, and the Superbas, but there's going to be some personalities as we go through these four years as well. And, and those are going to be a couple of the key guys that we'll talk about is Conley and Hamner. Um, but before we get into the 1961 season, we thought, we thought Glenn would talk a little bit about like where the team was and some of the building blocks that he was putting in place going into 1961. So Glenn, you want to, you want to take it from here or any, any, any general, general thoughts about those kind of like 57 to, to 1960 seasons? Yeah. Yeah. Well, so dude, good, good point. Yeah. So context is definitely required because I took over in 52 back to your thing about dynasties and what are the best teams? Well, 52, 53, 54, and 56, that was Washington. So the first real dynasty was, um, you know, King Kaplan, right? Yep. yep. And so, and that was kind of, I would say that's probably analogous to like Holt House today, right? Or, yep. or Holt House of the, of the C-Rob era, because he had, yep. he had Mays, right? <laughs> he had the best player. Mm-hmm. So, so he had the best player and he had the best pitching team. So, so his teams mm-hmm. were just phenomenal and he crushed the league. Well, I came into it in 52. I missed the, as we've discussed before, I missed the opening draft. So mm-hmm. I started the second season Well. On the one hand, I, I can tell you, it's kind of disheartening to take over a team where you see there's a clear dynasty and you know, you can just look at his team and you know, you're never going to run this guy down, right? Or at least, at least not right away. So that's, so yeah, that's, yeah. That, that's an important qualifier. So, so, but what's cool is it's really good to have a high bar and to have a high bogey like that. Mm-hmm. And to say to yourself, and I did, right. It was like, okay, I'm going to catch that guy in three years. Mm-hmm. And in fact, I did. Right? So right. I started in 52. I passed him in 55. He got me again in 56. Mm-hmm. But but the moral of the story is, the moral of the story is I, I had two, three seasons to work on it, right? I could conceive of a team. I could think about what I wanted to do. Back then, we had rules that allowed you to build or modify your ballpark, right? Mm-hmm. So So I custom built. Frank Thomas Memorial Stadium to be the pitching park that I wanted, like perfectly suit my team. Mm-hmm. And it's probably also worth mentioning at this point that people probably don't believe it now because I've just spent the last five or six seasons with Mullenix at shortstop, you know, like a non-defense shortstop. Mm-hmm. But but back then, I was absolutely positively a devotee of pitching, defense, and OBP. I really believe those are the only three characteristics that mattered. Yeah. And, and if you look at the teams that I had, I, I mean, I, I trade. I made a huge trade, Antonelli for Richie Ashburn. Ashburn is probably like, I don't know who he's analogous to, but he's like a 10-10 you know, defensive center fielder with like seven contact in the six eye, like that type, no power. Right? I, that, I I always thought of Richie Ashburn as the 1950s Lenny Dykstra. Okay. There right? you is go. that, there is that accurate? Yeah. I mean, what, yeah, was, yeah. I mean, I don't know. Was Dykstra a good field? Dykstra was a pretty decent fielder, wasn't he? I, I think so. I but know but he, he had power at some point or when he did the Roids, he, he got, he got yeah. power. Right? Okay. So, so Ashburn yeah. didn't yeah. have power. Right. Maybe. Okay. So maybe he, you know, who he's closest to, he might be closest to, um, Coggins. Coggins, Coggins, dude. Okay. Yeah. So, okay, sorry. So, so he's kind of like Coggins because mm-hmm. he's like a gold glove defender, right? That's right. He's a gold glove defender and he's a pretty, he's just a sick on base guy. So, so my entire team construction, my entire team construction was right. I wanted guys like high average, high OBP, and they could sling the leather. And I did not right, care. Right. Yeah, I did not care about power at all. Okay, so we it's got our, so, we got yeah, our answer yeah. right here. I just went to Baseball Reference. I okay, typed, okay. Typed in Richie Ashburn. You know, okay. at the bottom, and they give those similarity scores. 
Number one for Richie Ashburn, Brett Butler. There you go. That's perfect. <laughs> Dude, yes. On base perfect. speed and defense, right? Yep. Uh, yep. But no right. power. No power. Yep. So, yep. So there you go. Exactly. There you go. So, you exactly. Had, so, you had, so you had Richie Ashburn. Yeah. Um, so, so so my outfield. Yeah, exactly. So so my outfield is Minoso, Ashburn, Woodling. That's like having, like you said, Brett Butler and two Tony Gwens. I mean, right? It's like almost like that. Yes. Right? So, and in fact, that I, so I took that to the extreme again, where I'm trying to get to is I had time to build the team exactly the way I wanted. So I went for pure contact and I went for pure uh, or and, and walks if I could get them and leather where I could get it. And, and also in the older versions of the game, I think platooning was very important or at least more important than it is now. Platooning yeah. now is like irrelevant. Right. Right. But back then I think it mattered and I'm sure it did because I can look at my, I look at my lineups and you see all the left-handed guys who aren't good at anything, but seem to be really good. And, and I think that's because of the platoon effect. So, um, so, so that's what I did. And that worked in the sense that I did win it in 55, but it fell down in 56 uh-huh. In 57. I came back and won again, but then in 58 and 59, as you said, I got knocked out of the series. So, so I began to reevaluate. And so what's funny is you showed me this list of like the team's lineups year by year. Yeah. And you can see literally where I changed from defense first to offense first. And you can see it. So beginning in 57, I traded Woodling. Mm-hmm. In 58, I traded Minoso. In 59, I traded Ashburn. Yep. And so in almost every one of those. Mm-hmm. Now, partly there was finances, right? Because I had to trade Woodling for another thing that's not obvious here. Is It's kind of similar to where we're at. Maybe it's not exactly analogous to where we are now. We're extreme tight finances. Yep. But it was in 57 or 58 or somewhere in there that um, salary issues really started to bite. Yeah. And so I was able to pick up guys in free agency that were frankly really good. And they, they cost me nothing. So... So you'll see that when we get to 61, I had Irv Noren, 61, 62. Irv Noren was like, I think, I'm pretty sure it's true that he's like the Boston Federals all-time franchise right fielder. Like he was amazing. He played an entire decade for Boston. He was amazing. Yeah, yeah. I got the guy like for nothing in free agency, you know? So, um, okay. So long story short though. Basically, you see that I systematically almost every year from like whatever it is, 58 after I lost those two series from like Mm -hmm. 58 to 64, you'll see that I traded away an average player for a power player. Right. So so I traded Ashburn for Mantle. I traded Minoso for Kiner. um, And then later, you see that I added guys. I had Aparicio on my team. He's a gold glove defender. But in the end, I was like, well, Granny can hit. I'll put Granny. And he had short and I added Felix Mantilla. Well, he just got elected to the hall. Yes, he did. So you know that he, he could play, but yeah. but he was way he was way more as a masher than he was a fielder. <laughs> Dick right. McAuliffe, another guy who's a right, mash right. first, defense second. So yeah, so so my evolution is like evident in this, like from 58 to 64. My thinking changed entirely. And you could see every single yep. year I added I added power to my lineup every single year. So I so we should mention one thing. I'm jump in here because like most more than half of the league, well, well over half of the league wasn't around in these early years, right? So just for context context, because also a lot of these 1950s names, like everyone's heard of Mickey Mantle and you know Willie Mays and that's right, yeah, and, yeah. and guys like that, and maybe even Gene Conley. But just for context, like Gene Woodling, who was the right fielder, he was Brooklyn's yep. right fielder for the first six years. This guy was a Hall of Fame candidate. Yeah. Um, so he was like, uh, when when the Hall of Fame voting first started, which I think was in 1965 or something, this guy, Gene Woodling, was in the top five of a lot of offensive categories. So this guy's no slouch. Same with Minnie Minoso. He was like another kind of like... Um, kind of a hit machine, right? I think he was a high average, like yeah. base guy, pretty good, uh, you know, pretty good glove, but um, he was also a hall of fame candidate. So the guys that you're talking about replacing are already above average players, right? <laughs> that's right. That's right. Um, and and that's then, right. and then you're talking about bringing in, you know, Mant- you, you get mantle, um, mantle yeah. comes in at 59. Um, yep. You had Ralph Kiner there for a couple of years, um, yep. another hall of famer. 
Granny Hamner comes in in 55. He basically was on the team through throughout this whole era. So, you know, another thing I want to note here, because I was just, as you were talking, I was flipping through because you mentioned free agency. And I'm like, wait a minute, we didn't have free agency right off the bat because, you know, we tried to replicate kind of historical That's right. yeah. sort of stuff, which was, I mean, there was no free agency, right? There was basically right. the reserve clause. And then right. you were either, you were either basically resigned or, or, or you were not. So in, in the way we did it in the United League was we had re-entry drafts, right? So right, I'm looking right. at, so if you look on the drafts tab, we've got every year there was a re-entry draft and then there was the rookie draft. And in the very early years, you know, we were drafting guys like, I, I want to say um, like Whitey Ford, for example, Yeah, he did not come into the league until 53 because of um a lot of these guys were in the Korean war, right? So we had, yep. and we had some, we, we had some draft for the Korean war as well as some players were gone and came back. But uh, Whitey Ford, for example, was the number one pick in the 1953 re-entry draft. He yep. was technically, it was the first time he was drafted, um, but Chicago got the pick. So speaking of which 1953 Chicago, <laughs> they had the number one, number one re-entry pick, number one rookie pick. Who does he take? Whitey Ford and a yeah. guy named Ernie Banks. So talk yeah. about like uh, having a couple of number one picks. Yeah, that's um, the greatest double in league history. Great, it's probably it's yeah. that's, that's it's two Hall of Famers. Yeah, yeah. two Hall of yeah, Famers. Exactly. But but the reason I mentioned this was like 1960, which is the you know we're, that's kind of the year we're focusing on, right? We're going to talk about 1961 here, but 1960 is the first year, and I think I want to say when we had the reentry draft, we had some kind of a salary system that said, okay, yeah. um, the number one pick in the reentry draft is going to get X amount of money, the number two pick is going to get the next. It was basically that's right, a salary yeah, structured structure, structured yeah. contracts. And I also want to say that you had the option of passing if you wanted to, and and I yeah I know that's the case because I'm looking at the 1959 draft. And it says it went to 13 rounds because Joe St. Louis drafted Joe Garagiola in the 13th round, but most teams stopped after like three rounds, right? Yeah. You know, like yeah. like Brooklyn is like uh, Brooklyn got Acker, Charlie Neal, Rapparicio, yeah, a couple of pitchers, and then after the third round, you're like, I'm done, yeah, I'm out. Although, and then you, you skipped eight rounds, and then in the 11th round, yeah, I'll pick up this guy, Mini Minoso. So you got right. Vinny Minoso, <laughs> right, right, right. literally the 44th out of 45 picks in the 1950 draft was, yeah. Mini, was Mini Minoso. But I digress. The main point here is that 1960 was the first year that we actually went to the free agency system. Yep. And I posit that, you know, there's one hypothesis that says, well, maybe this is where the Glen Reed genius came in is when with free agency, when you're actually bidding on players and player evaluation comes into the equation instead of like, the number five picks gets a million dollars or whatever. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. Where you're actually valuing and and you're and you're bidding against other players. It says here free agent auction. I don't know that in 1960 we were doing it in game. Maybe it was still. We might have just been um, an auction off a of draft list like we do now at the very end of the FA process. But you picked up some big right. names there. Roy Campanella, I think, was towards the end of his career. <laughs> Yes, got, but still. Um, yeah, but still. Yeah. You got Roy yeah. Squirrel Seavers, Tony Kubek. Yeah, Kubek uh, was my defensive replacement. He's like Tim Foley today. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, Ray yeah. Herbert, who I think Ray yeah. Herbert ended up being um, yeah. one of Chicago's main starters. So Yeah, he was legitimately useful. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then, so another thing to note, 1960, while we're on the issue of 1960, I'm looking at the rookie draft. I'm like, okay, so we're talking about how to build, you know, dynasty teams. So let's see what Brooklyn did in the draft. I'm looking at the 1960 draft. Every single pick you traded to Chicago, right? So uh, yeah, that's the beginning of trading away, um, trading yeah. away the entire draft. I think that's yeah. first year. Well, no, and you had no draft picks in 59 either. Because that's, I traded them. That was the Mickey Mantle trade. It was 59 and 60. I yep. think I traded them like yep. two years of picks. Yeah. Yes. All right. That's a great yeah, segue because yeah. that's one yeah. thing we wanted to discuss. So. Mickey Mantle and Whitey Ford. So again, going back to context, 1958, there were, so in the first eight years of the league, there were 52 trades. I mean, here, like six trades a year, right? Not a <laughs> yeah, lot. Yeah. Not yeah, a lot right. of trades. Right. 1959 might've been the low point of trading. I think there were only, there were four trades in 1959. I'm looking at the chart here. Yes. 1959 is literally the nadir of trades, four trades, three of them, were before the season. However, there was a trade close to the, in the middle of the season. Trade number 56, you're scoring at home. 
Brooklyn, Chicago. So here we go. We're setting up. This is a great launching point of this rivalry because, again, who are the two play, two key players you picked up in this deal? <laughs> oh, I know for sure. <laughs> that was the Mantle Forge. So the thing is, yes. it, dude, I hate to even. It's even worse. It's actually worse. I, I don't want to go too. It was Mantle and Ford. Mantle was the best player. Well, the best player in the game, arguably, is Ernie Banks. But Ernie Banks and Mickey Mantle, the two best players in the game. Yep. Whitey Ford was one of the best pitchers in the game, yep. but he also included Johnny Cux, who was a prospect yes. at that time. Yes. The Cux turned out to be really good. So he I was. think probably I just got lucky with Cux. Yeah. He turned out to be really good. And so that was another one where it's like, Jesus, dude, I just, I struck gold there. But again, I, let's be clear. I, I, so there's a whole separate discussion about this to be had. But I try to give good value, and I think I gave good value here. And it must have—it must be true because, <laughs> as you said, we we both turned out to to be in the World Series the next like five years in a row. You know, after this, right? Right, right. Gave up. You gave up Don the Sphinx Mossy, who turned yeah. out to be um, one of he Chicago's. He was excellent. He was yeah. excellent for Chicago, yeah. and he'll—he—that's a name that you'll probably see as we dive into these series. Richie Ashburn was in that trade now i don't rem- i don't recall richie ashburn kind of being on the chicago team so he might have been traded on again or he's probably getting old by that point yeah he was getting yeah. older yeah and yeah. gorman was quite good or again again he was older by that by that point because gorman had won to cy young in like 55 i believe yes yeah so yeah so you're talking about um mantle and ford and both of these guys will figure prominently as we go forward although you know, I'm not looking at Whitey Ford's stats off the bat, but if I recall, he, I mean, I get, you no, know, Ford, he had, he, he was awesome. He was a stud. I think he was awesome. Right. He was in the Hall of Fame. He had some great yeah. years. I think he had some great years in Chicago and some great yes. years in, in Brooklyn is, yes. is what happened there. So, um, yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. No, he's amazing, dude. The thing is, so again, so just to, just to make it relevant for people today. So, so this is where, so, okay, I want to go back to something you said earlier. 1960 was the first year of free agency. Mm-hmm. Well, dude, you have this tab. I mean, this total UL is like the greatest thing ever invented. <laughs> you have a tab, the teams tab. Uh-huh. If you run all the way out to the right on the teams tab, you have the attendance, revenue, expenses, yes. and profit ranks, right? Right, right. Well, it turns out, remember, I built my own stadium, so... Um, I custom built my stadium. So I had number one attendance and I was number one revenue. Yeah. Like three out of four years before 1960. Yeah. Yep. 58. To but my expenses yeah. were like Detroit. I was the sixth and fifth lowest payroll in 58 and 59. Right. Yeah, so, yeah. so that's not quite Detroit level, but it's pretty close. Right. Like, cause you're out of eight teams, right. You're talking about the number six out of eight teams at that point, or did we move to yeah. 10? Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. We're up to 10, but still. Okay. Okay. Only. The moral of the story is, uh, you know, I was producing the best record with like a middle of the pack payroll. And so, and that is where, so to make it relevant for today, that's where these, it's like, again, we have to do a separate finances episode, Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, dude, if you, it's just like, it's like free money or not free money, uh, free lottery tickets, or I don't, I don't know what the best way is to describe it, but, but it's like, if, if you just, again, pinching your pennies really pays off because but for a reason, it's not, you're not pinching pennies just for no reason, right? Yep. You're pinching pennies so that when you get a chance, you can just go nuts and, and like exactly. snag, right, and that, snag yep. Irv Norin and whoever, right? right. And just, yeah. and, that, and that's what you did in 1961. If you look at this tab here, like you're saying, you're kind of mid table in terms of expenses. Yep. Yep. And then, so you win the world series and you win, you finally win the world series again in 1960. And that's when, so for the next few years, 61 to 64, yep. the years we're going to talk about, you're yep. you're in the top two in yep. spending. So you're splashing out the money now because yep. you've built up this, you've got a good team and you're going after good guys. So let's just yep. take a minute here to talk about the 1961 roster. And I'm going to, I'm going to list these players by their salary, right? So this yep. will give us a sense of, of how your team was constructed. So number one, Mickey Mantle. Probably the highest paid player in the league at the time, 96.50, right? He's just under yeah. 10 million. And yeah. just to give a sense, like there is no inflation in the UL. So basically, 
when you hear a salary of like nine million, roughly analogous, because yeah, even though we didn't have a payroll cap, most teams were around seventy-five million anyway. So these dollar amounts, when we throw them out there, are basically fixed or constant through yeah. time. So Mickey Mantle at ninety-six fifty, uh, it was an age twenty-nine season, um, and then you had Bobby Brown at third base. Yeah. Now he 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 was not. He he was a good player, but he was never like all UL caliber or whatever. But I mean, he still hit 304 that year. I mean, <laughs> right. he was a solid, solid hitter, right? right. Um, probably not your second best batter, but he was the second highest in payroll. Then you drop down. Next is Luberdet, 4,600. We're talking a lot about Luberdet. He's 34 years old uh, in 1961. Still has a lot of his career ahead of him, as you yep. will hear as we go on. Gene Conley at 4,200. Um, again, I already mentioned three Cy Youngs at this point. Whitey Ford is coming in at 3,660. He's 32 years old. And then, so those are basically the, the top five or six guys in terms of payroll. Oh, Granny Hamner's there at 4,100. 40, so, um, yep. and he, I think he was uh, on his way to winning. Yep. Um, multiple like batting titles right and multiple yeah that's mid-career that's probably mid-career for him right Mm -hmm. because i think 55 like i started winning when he got good basically right yeah yeah i think hamner and conley i think both like came up at the same time basically yep 57 was the 57 was so granny hamner like we'll do a little quick bio of, of this guy he was basically um a very, very late draft. He was an original UL-er. He was 23 years old in 1951. In real life, he played for the Phillies. He was kind of like an all-glove, uh, no-hit kind of guy. Right, um, right. He's kind of like the the, the, the UL's original C-Rob, right? It, um, yeah, yeah. Minus, yeah. The po- minus the power. But right. um, I think he was a super late draft pick, like maybe 30, 35th round in the inaugural <laughs> draft, whatever. He was on Detroit for one year, he got traded to, to Brooklyn really doesn't do anything until 1957, which I'd, we must've converted games or he got some huge leap because to that point he was basically like a 270 hitter. Yep. And then he hits 356. He gets 206 hits in a season drives in 109 runs. Um, yeah. that, that was the, that was the first of like five, six, seven straight hundred RBI seasons, which basically, yeah which basically overlaps your, your dynasty years. So, yep, exactly. Yeah. yeah. You want to talk a bit about Granny Hamner? Like, do you even remember acquiring him? Well, no, I didn't because, um, so again, I took over the team halfway through 52 or maybe it was early in 52. The other guy, Frank Thomas happened to be the guy's name. He left, but he left me with a cupboard, like completely Granny Hamner and, and Gil Hodges at first. So Gil Hodges was like a power hitting first baseman. So, so what I did, and so maybe this is worth um, discussing, and again, to make it relevant to today, mm-hmm. what I basically did was, a- as we just discussed, like, look at the number one team, okay, <laughs> the number one team is pitching dominant, and this was a pitching era, so it might help to just step back for two seconds. Now, you know, we have a five-man staff and 162 games. Well, back then, I want to say it was like 152 games, but a four-man staff and even the four man staff, I'm pretty sure like, like the, the innings a guy could pitch were, were higher now or higher then than they are now. Yeah. So you would, you could literally have guys start 40 plus games and go 300 innings. Like that wasn't uncommon even. Yep. Whereas now if a guy goes 200 innings, you're like, Whoa, 200 innings. That's awesome. <laughs> right. Yep, yep. But, but 200 innings on 1400. I mean, that's like, I don't know. I'm no math major. It's around 15%, right? So 15%. But back then, if you had a guy who could throw 300 innings on uh, whatever it is, 1350, that's almost a quarter of your innings in one guy. Yeah, That's incredible. Yep. So, so to me, it was like self-evident, like, okay, I have to have dominant pitching. And so I traded for Conley. I hounded you for Burdett. You had Lou Burdett on your team. Yeah. Don't remind me. No, I mean, you yeah, had yeah, Lou yeah. Burdett and I... <laughs> I just kept accumulating things like until I could give you enough things that you liked to get Lubernet, right? So, so, so I just like went after all the best pitching prospects. Now I did make a mistake again. I don't want to call it a mistake because I feel like if I'm giving, if I'm trading with you, I hope you're getting good value too. 
And so I had Johnny Antonelli on my team, or I drafted Antonelli. That might have been my first draft pick. I traded Antonelli for Ashburn like straight up. So I traded away a Hall of Fame pitcher. <laughs> like, yeah, just be yeah. clear. I traded away maybe the left, best left-handed pitcher in league history, right? right. But I wanted a 10-10 leadoff hitting center fielder, right? So, so it's like, again, it was totally consistent with my concept of team building. I, I, I looked at the number one team. It would be like looking at Manhattan when I took over Boston, right? Okay, Manhattan's the best team. Holthouse has the best player. He has the, I, I got to figure out a way to run this guy down. And so you're just metagaming, right? All your decisions are around how do I counter C-Rob, right? right? How do right. I counter his park? I have to come up with things that work for his park and for his specific lineup. So I just did the same thing for Washington. But long story short, that's how you end up with Conley and Burdett. And, and that's how once you, once you get these, now I got Conley who turned into the best pitcher and I got Burdett who turned into the second best pitcher. It's like, dude, half my innings, half my innings are thrown by the two best pitchers in the game. Like, come on, how can I not? I mean, right. I should be in it every year, right? Yep. At that point. Yes. So, oh, so your original question was about Granny Hamner. So sorry, dude. So Granny was on the team when I took over, but he was just like you said, all glove shortstop. And I did prioritize defense at the time because I was trying to get pitching and uh, defense and OBP, as I said. And so I had Granny play short. Right before he was Granny again, it would be like as you said, having C Rob early C Rob. Like Granny was probably like an eight defense shortstop by today's standards, but with like seven contact, you know, whatever two power and three eye or something like that. Yeah, and then like in one or two seasons, he went from seven two three to like you know ten five eight or whatever. Right, just something incredible. Yep, and so. And yeah, and all of a sudden I had a gold or you know, I had a, a good shortstop who could break. And I kept it like that, as you see, until we get to 61 or until we get to 60, when I had a chance to get um Louis Aparicio, who I think before on the call we were comparing him to like Gary Templeton of today. Yeah. Not quite Ozzie Smith, but and then I moved Granny to second. And so for years there, then I played Granny at second. I had Aparicio or, or a gold glove shortstop at and again, I stuck with that pitching and defense mentality. As I changed all around, I started, like I say, adding power, adding power, and changing to like a, a power based lineup. Yeah. But, um, but anyway, that was the, yeah, Granny Hammer. So, so I lucked out. I mean, I took over a team that had a massive, I mean, just had a massive amount of talent. Right. So then, so all I had to do, <laughs> all I had to do is very simply start picking off piece back. Like Gorman, I'm pretty sure I traded for Gorman. I mean, I don't know, Gorman. I don't think yeah, I'm pretty sure I traded for Gorman too. And he ended up, he won the Cy Young in 55. Right. Right. So yeah, I think um, by these years he was, he was past his prime, but um, exactly. He was but, exactly. Yeah. He was, but, but sorry. Yeah. But my point was just find a good starter at, at, at this time because pitching was so dominant um, with respect to a four man rotation and how many innings your starter could throw. Yeah, You just really needed if you just needed a good rotation, if you had a good rotation, you'd be in it every year. Yep. And so that was, that was essentially, that's all I tried to do. Okay. So a quick sidebar here on Granny Hamner. I'm looking at his hall of fame page and uh, looking at his stats. So Granny Hamner won the batting title six times. And so his, his, he had a pretty long career, 20 year career, but his, yeah. his peak was really 57 to 64. So basically talking about, the, <laughs> yeah. the, the you know peak brooklyn right peak hamner yep. peak hamner is peak brooklyn right yep. so i mentioned already he had seven straight 100 rbi seasons he won the batting title six times out of those eight years and all he hit over 350 six times <laughs> two three four he had four 200 hit seasons so i mean the guy was um the most he ended with a 323 average and that's you know, that's only because, you know, he, he if he had retired after right, right. his age 37 season, you know, yeah. he might have been up closer to 330, whatever. But anyway, yeah. so um, the guy and also he just as a final note on Hamner, he hit 322 in the World Series, um, 918 OPS in 44 World Series games. So this is a guy who will figure prominently when we get into the actual um, the actual series. So um so what do you think? Should we talk about the 1961 season now? 
Yeah, sure. Yeah. Part two of this. So we're going to, we're going to talk about <laughs> right. the 1961. <laughs> that's enough context. Yeah. Part two, that's yeah, enough context. Yeah, right. So we'll talk about the 1961 season <laughs> yeah, yeah. and then we'll go into the actual series. So I'm, I've, I've called up the 61, uh, you know, the actual circuit clouts and the headline is superb is advanced. Okay. Superb is advanced to fifth straight series. Hamner wins his third Cy Young. Conley wins 24, got to a 24 win season. So I'll just read the first paragraph here. It says, yeah. Brooklyn Superbas rolled to their fifth straight East Division pennant, winning 100 games for the third year in a row and capturing the flag by a comfortable 26-game margin over second-place Detroit. Okay, <laughs> So winning the East by 26 games. Yeah, pretty, pretty that's huge, right? Yeah. Uh, though not as dominant, though not as dominant as last year. All right. So apparently 1960 was even better. It was a down year. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Uh, when yeah. the club set a UL record, 108 wins and a plus 294 run differential. The boss maintained their status as the league's elite club. The offense was yeah. again, the offense was again led by the most dominant hitter in the league, three-time MVP, Granny, Granny Ichiro Hamner. There we go. Um, led the league in batting the fourth time yeah, in five years. Go, yeah. um, all right. And then, so I'm going to scroll down here. It says Chicago wins first pennant with record 92 wins. So again, for context, let's go back to the history page here. Chicago was a decent team in the 50s. But they never quite, never quite got to the promised land, right? So they came in third a couple of times in fifty-one and fifty-five. He was tied for third in fifty-seven, tied for second in fifty-eight, second in nineteen sixty. So he's close. He's banging on the door. But these are the years that Louisville and San Francisco are getting in. St. Louis, Louisville, and San Francisco yep. are yep. winning the West. And then finally in nineteen sixty-one, he breaks through and wins. And, you know, and Lance is going to be on here for, for future segments. So, you know, hold, you know, stay tuned for that. But um, Chicago, to put their team in context, he won six straight West Division pennants, including three straight 100 win seasons. So um, but this is really the year that he breaks through 1961. And it says right here, Chicago wins first pennant with record 92 wins. Sturdivant, and that's another key figure that we'll be talking about, Tom Sturdivant and Bud Daly lift the ailing Colts rotation. Chicago clinches first pennant. Uh, they were 17-9 and nine in September, pulling away from second place Louisville to clinch with nine games to go, despite losing the top half of the rotation. Billy Pierce and Carl Erskine were lost for the season. So th- these are two uh, Hall of Famers, right? Erskine, I don't think Erskine's in the Hall of Fame, but he... He had a very, he's amazing. He had yeah, a very he's amazing. short. He had a very short Hall of Fame like career, right? Yeah, he's incredible. Yeah. Um, so he lost Billy Pierce and Carl Erskine for the season, um, but uh, Sturdivant was nineteen and thirteen. He man down the stretch. He won five straight games, and Bud Daly um, did well when he's forced in the rotation. So offense was led by Ernie Banks, who had thirty-one home runs, one hundred and eight RBIs, had a six straight thirty home run, one hundred RBI season. So he, you was, know, this is one too where it might. I mean, we should obviously see what Lance has to say, but if you're asking me, this 1960 was the central year for him too, right? So 59, he, he trades Mantle for Ashburn, he trades Ford for Mossy, plus he gets two years of draft picks. Mm-hmm. But if you look at 1960, that's the first year he adds Joe Adcock. Well, that's a Hall of Famer, right? Mm-hmm. He adds Nellie Fox in 61. Nellie Fox was never, I mean, he's a Hall of Famer in real life. He was never quite that good mm-hmm. in the game, but he was a lefty hitting gold glove second base. He's like, he's like uh Rennie Stinnett now, but just left-sided. Yep. I mean, so that was, a, he's an excellent player. And then he had Hank Thompson and that's not going to mean anything to mm-hmm. guys who just joined the league now, but Hank Thompson was so good. It's, like shock. I, I don't even know what the what the comparison is to Hank Thompson today, but but he, yeah. he basically was a he's a third base, he's a lefty hitting. He was kind of, well, he was kind of like Felix Mantilla. He's basically a left-sided Felix Mantilla, right? So yeah, so he, he played second base or third base. He was lefty, he could mash, he hit for power, and he was the he was the third baseman, or maybe it was the second baseman actually on the Washington Dynasty team. Yes. So I don't know how Lance ended up with him, but basically Lance's 1960, he gets Adcock, Thompson, Nellie Fox, and and Don Demeter, who mm-hmm. was frankly 
a power hitting center fielder. Well, yes, who could field? Yep. Yeah. I mean, we, and we just yep. saw, right? <laughs> Look at Montreal. We just saw that the importance of a power hitting center fielder. What what could you do with a gold glove center fielder who can mash? Well, it'll put you in the World Series every friggin' year. So anyway, so yeah, so yep. Lance's like 1960 was amazing, transformative. So um I'm gonna pull up some. I'm going to look at the 1961 season stats here. So just can kind of get a sense of where these teams rank. So in terms of like runs scored and runs against. Okay. So 1961 Brooklyn was, so this is one of the secrets of success. Obviously, if you can be, num- <laughs> if, if you can be number one in runs scored and number one in runs against, that is a recipe for success, right? Yeah, that helps, I mean, that's yeah. pretty obvious, right? So yeah, Brooklyn that did that. A shocking uh, eight years in a row. Brooklyn yeah. was number one in runs and runs against 57. To, again, you'll be hearing this again over and over 57 to 64, right? Yeah. So uh, again, the only two years in that eight game span you, that you didn't win were 58 and 59 in the seven game heartbreakers. But basically yeah. number one in runs, number one in runs against. If we're looking at Chicago in these years, so starting in 61, he was actually third in runs and third in runs against. So, okay, that begs the question. All right, that that would lead me to believe that they're the third best team, right? If there's yeah. so so let's look, let's see who was second in runs in 1961. The answer is the St. Louis Maroons were second in runs scored. However, they were a distant fourth in the five-team West Division because they were eighth out of ten in pitching. Right. Yeah. So um Louisville was actually the number two pitching team. This is the team that had Antonelli and, yep. and Waymeyer, I think, were their two. Yep. Yep. And again, this is in, in the area when those guys Antonelli pitched 350 innings a year for I know, mean, come on. That's right? incredible. So basically dude. uh Antonelli and Waymeyer were like close to 50% of their innings. So yeah, they were second in runs against but only fourth in runs scored chicago won the west by a fairly comfortable 11 run margin so so there we go we set the context brooklyn's in with a shout by the way second place team detroit we mentioned the 26 game margin detroit was actually under 500 so we had five teams in the east you had brooklyn at a 102 and 52 with a 662 win percentage the other four teams were all under 500 and to give you even more context of how just how dominant these two teams were, Chicago and Brooklyn, 10-team league, only three teams over 500, Brooklyn, Chicago, and Louisville. The other seven teams are all under 500. That's kind of shocking in itself. And we're just getting started, by the way, because 61 is actually, you know, these teams will get even more dominant as we go on. So what do you think? Should we head should we head into the 1961 World Series? Bring it on. Yeah. All right. So let's go to uh, I'm looking at the uh, total UL. I'm going to go to the playoffs tab. Right at the top says World Series summary. I'm going to click on 1961. These are hyperlinked. It's going to take me right to the World Series. So so we'll go through. It's a five game series. As you'll again, another theme is that these are all five game series. All four of these series were four to one Brooklyn wins. So we'll go through, we'll try to keep this fairly short. We don't want to spend, you know, a bunch of time talking about this, but um, so I'll give a little description of the game and then you can jump in with, you know, some, some comments. So we mentioned that Bud Daly was, uh, so Chicago lost their two top pitchers. So Bud Daly, who was not in the rotation, had to jump into the rotation and he was actually, Chicago was up two to nothing. I think it was Bud Daly against Conley. In game one, Daly's doing awesome. He's got a two nothing lead going into the seventh. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and then everything turns around. Granny Hamner <laughs> leads off the seventh with a double. Squirrel Seavers got a bloop single. Dick Gernert uh, single. Del Crandall, and then the key hit shortstop Louis Aparicio, who you've already mentioned, who is mainly yeah. a defensive guy, right? Yeah, totally. He gets a clutch hit. He hits a line drive over the head of shortstop Ernie Banks. So one, it's battle of shortstops. Aparicio lines one over Banks, can't get to it. Two runs score. It's a three to two game. And that's all she wrote. Uh, and, and Gene Conley gets the win. Gene Conley allowed eight hits, and two runs in eight innings, struck out eight and was the player of the game. So again, Another name that you'll hear as we go through this, Gene Conley wins the first battle in a three to two decision. One thing you mentioned there was you mentioned Squirrel Seavers, 
yeah. Del Crandall, a bunch of guys. So this kind of goes back to the um, team construction and payroll management thing we were just talking about. Like the, those guys were all like small contract, again, platoon players, right? So, so in, in our league, you can see there's tons of guys like that. Um, Gene Tennis, uh, Gene Crowley was a guy for years that was like that. Um, Joe Liss, L-I-S, right? Yep. There's these guys in the league that make minimum contracts every year. I don't care what year, every year they make a minimum contract, but their ratings are always like five, seven, eight. I mean, if I can get to 20 on one side and then I'll take the other guy on a minimum contract who does five, seven, eight, it's like, so, so those are like, there's a lot of those type of opportunities that you can pick up. And so, and again, that massively helps your finances and, and your output is good. So I just wanted to call that out because a lot of the guys you just named right there, I mean, you didn't name Hamner, you didn't name Mansell, yep. right? Those are all right, right. like, those are all part-time guys, but they had good ratings and they were dirt cheap. So yep, anyway, yep. that's like. That's that's a key. Okay, okay. So you just said uh, you just said Hamner and Mantle. Okay, so that brings us to game two, right? Okay, so game two is uh, it is Tom Sturdivant. Okay, the S turd. (laughs) So the S turd. This is a guy who was uh, one of Chicago's dominant pitchers, but um, as you know, as we've already noted. Chicago is out their two best pitchers. It looks like Pierce and Erskine. So they're kind of behind the eight ball, even though they've won the West by a fairly comfortable monitor. So Tom Sturdivant against Lou Burdett. Um, So, and Lou Burdett is, you know, as we'll see, he's, he's, we just announced the, the playoff MVP award is going to be named after this guy, but in the regular season, this guy was always behind. He was always the number two guy behind Conley, right? It was like Conley, number one, Burdett, number two. And obviously that comes out because he's starting game two, yes, uh, yes. you know, after Conley. So let's read the description here of game two. It says Burdett shuts the door, mantle homers, boss take two, nothing lead. Tom Sturdivant fell behind early. So that's another theme, another motif through this uh, Sturdivant with his um, playoff woes, shall we say falls yeah. behind early and the Colts bats were silenced by Lou Burdett who fell just two out short of a complete game shutout. Uh, Del Crandall got an RBI double. Um, let's see. Sturdivant kept close into the fifth inning. Uh, the Esturd retired. He, he gave out a t- he gave up a two run homer to Mantle for four nothing lead. Uh, it looks like Burdett was so no Hamner sorry Hamner was um, three for four with a couple of doubles and Mantle had a two run homer. Yeah. So that helps. So yeah, there you go. Helps. Five nothing. Yeah. Burdett. Yeah. Uh, he Burdett goes the distance. Complete game. Six hitter. Uh, Chicago got like a constellation run in the ninth inning, but basically it was Brooklyn all the way five to one and, yeah. you're, up, and you're up to zero. So, okay. well, that's the opposite of what I just talked about. Then it's like, okay, yep. all your big ticket guys perform like big ticket guys, right? Yep. Yep. Burdett, Burdett gets a CG hammer three for four metal hits a Jack. I mean, that's okay. Yep. yep. Right. Yeah. All right. So let's move on to game three. Game three is, back in Chicago and the Colts actually win this one. This is the one, the only game that they would win. And I'm looking at the line score. So they were behind two to one and they got three runs in the third. And then they held on for a four to three win. Let's see what the story says here. Demeter blasts Colts to victory. Yeah. Sphinx, Don Sphinx Mossy. So he, yep. Don Mossy is his name. He's called the Sphinx because he had this honk and nose, <laughs> right? So he, you're yeah. nicknamed the, the Sphinx. I forget who Don Mossy pitched for in real life. Um, I don't know. He was really good in the UL, though. Yep. I mean, I had him for years. Yep. Um, he might have been a Yankee in real life. Um, so it says Dom Demeter's three-run blast off Whitey Ford in the third inning held up. So there you go. That was the key at bat. Don Demeter, three-run homer. Don Elston got the save. So um, Yeah, and Mantle had a good game. So that was a close game there, 4-3, right? Yeah, that was a close absolutely, game. Well. Absolutely close game, 4-3. Yeah. to three. Yeah. In fact, Chicago only had four hits. So, um, so Whitey Ford... Went to distance. Whitey Ford pitched yeah. a four hitter, yeah. but unfortunately, one of those four hits was a three run homer by Demeter, yeah. and then so suddenly the Colts are back in the series, right? So it's yeah. two two one, going into game four. So game four, it looks like it's a game one rematch. So again, this is back in the era of four man rotations, yeah. which means when you get to the playoffs, you can essentially because of that one off day, you could essentially have a three man rotation yep. in the playoffs. So that's why game four, we see Conley versus Daly in kind of the game one rematch. 
This one turns out to be a slugfest. There's 25 total hits. Daly got rocked. 13, he gave up 13 hits in just over seven innings. But Conley was not that sharp either. He only gave he gave up 10 hits in seven innings. So let's see what the story is on game four. It says Conley rallies Superbas. Uh, Gene drives in two and strikes out eight. So here we go. Gene Conley doing it with the bat. Uh, <laughs> shut down numerous Chicago rallies and contributed two decisive RBIs as Brooklyn took a commanding three to one lead in the series. Brooklyn built a four to one lead in the middle of the third, by the middle of the third, including Conley's two out single in the second for the Boz third run. Hamner got a two out double and scored on Irv Noren single. So Conley, you know, the dude, the dude gets a couple of RBIs and you win the game six to four. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. um, but yeah, again, Hamner was three for five in this game. There he is. Conley two for four. Conley was literally the, the second best hitter ever. <laughs> the hitting star. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. So, so that's BS. But like you said, here's Seavers, squirrel Seavers again, two for two, a triple and a rib. So, so you do see those guys. Well, that goes back to this thing about, I mean, whatever it's a philosophical thing. Right. But just how important OBP is, right? So if you have 13 hits and I don't know how many walks, I mean, right? I'm sure I must've had a ton of guys. I assume I had a bunch of guys on base. So, um, you know, then, then stupid, you know, Conley gets his chance to get his, his run scoring single or whatever. So yeah, I, I just feel like OBP is just the dominant stat. And this, this kind of proves it. Or I mean, again, I, I don't want to go overboard because I did. Sure as I say, start switching to power at some point, but, but I mean, dude, yeah, I mean, you can see like, I'm putting like every single game, <laughs> like nine hits, nine hits, nine hits, yep. like you know, every game. And then, and again, a bunch of walks too. So, and, and by the way, so I don't know how much you want to spend on this, but like Burdett, think about Burdett's characteristics. He's, he's actually probably closest to like candy Audi. Now he was like a 10 control guy, right? Yeah. He had good stuff to, control but he might have given up you know 30 homers right i mean yeah so it wasn't like it wasn't like he didn't give up taters but like nobody could get on base against him so yeah so not only did i structure my offense around obp but i structured my pitchers around obp too so right so um, so hamner hamner was the player of the game in that game four oh sorry put you up no no you're fine so it it put it put you up three games to one but another note here is that i'm looking at the at the line here so chicago you were up six to three you gave chicago rally they got a run in the ninth um but bob miller got the save so bob miller i think was your fourth starter on this yes which is why you had him coming out of the pen because again your rotation was basically um conley burdett and four, so, yeah. yeah. So that's pretty. That's kind of unbeatable. So Bob Miller, no slouch in his own right. Right. This is yeah. a guy who I think was, uh, he was excellent. One yeah. of the top pitchers on some of those early yeah. Brooklyn teams. Yeah. Got him coming out of the pen. So it's basically yeah. lights out at that point. Yeah. All right. So we go to Game Five, still in Chicago. It. This is a Game Two rematch: Burdett versus Sturdivant. Um, let's see. We'll read the description here. So Brooklyn wins at four to one. The headline is Brooklyn captures fourth title. Burdett wins again with a four-hit gem. Lou Burdett repeated his game two performance, allowing just four hits in a single run to lead Brooklyn to the fourth United League championship. Burdett took a no-hitter into the fifth and a shutout into the seventh, allowed just four hits and one run in 8.2 innings. So he didn't quite get the complete game. But um, let's see. Brooklyn struck early on Granny Hamner's RBI double. So again, Granny again with the bat. Um, yeah. Hamner let the game in the fifth after hurting his arm on a throw, but his replacement, Charlie Neal promptly homered in Brooklyn's <laughs> next at bat. So there you go. You have a four-time batting champion. Yeah, lead the yeah, game. Yeah, what yeah. happens? Charlie Neal yeah, comes in yeah. and hits a home run. So that's classic, yeah, that's just, classic that's play, playoff, yeah. playoff baseball. <laughs> yeah, 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 right. Yeah. Um, and let's see the hapless Colts could muster only a pair of two out singles in the seventh. And they finally give the packed house of committee faithful something to cheer about. Stringing together two hits and a stolen base to get back on the board, but it was too little too late as Burdett and Bob Miller held the Colts scoreless or hitless in the last two innings to nail down the win. So uh, so there you have it, a 4-1 series win. And Lou Burdett was named the series MVP. Uh, he had a 1.02 ERA. In That's all right. Yeah. Eight, <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
in uh in 18.2 innings is that right yeah. that can't be right yeah. no 17.7 innings so he, he yeah 17 and two-thirds 17 yeah. and two-thirds right so he yeah. went nine innings he got a complete game and then all yeah. but one out of the second game <laughs> yes uh, yes 1.02 era yeah. uh he had two walks and 11 k's so yeah, yeah. pretty easy choice there although i will say granny hamner hit a, a tidy 579 <laughs> with um he was 11 for 19 six doubles uh, yeah yeah 11 yeah. 19 six doubles so he basically had a quarter of your hits you, yeah. Brooklyn, Brooklyn only hit 280 in the series but Chicago hit 211 yeah. and the total score was 21 to 12 in the five games so so yeah yeah, Burdett, what, yeah. so yeah so go ahead so Sturt event our uh, so Sturt event in his first World series 0 5.06 <laughs> yeah um, yeah and little, yeah. little did we know at the time that this would actually be one of his better World Series, <laughs> right? Um, only later would he. It, it is interesting that he was. We were already referring to to Esterd. Yeah. I think that was just a play on his name. <laughs> yeah, but it, it was prophetic. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it was nominative, a, <laughs> nominative determinism. I think it's it was yeah. a nominative. Exactly. That that will yeah. be the theme as we go on. Is like the Esterd, yeah. like never he, he I, it was we. A, a bit of spoiler alert here, but uh, Street Event never won a World Series game despite yeah. five World Series. Um, and, 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 you know, he'll figure prominently as we as we go on. So, um, so any, any final concluding thoughts here on the 61 series? Well, there's two things, and I think uh, something I, and Lance will certainly say, but maybe I should just like jump to it, is um, he, so one thing to think about Lance's team, is that he actually moved, he changed stadiums. So I mentioned early that I built my stadium custom. So I built my what I deemed to be like a perfect pitcher's park. Yes. He moved to Comiskey, yes. which is a serious pitcher's park. Yes. And so, um, so, and he built his team for a pitcher's park. So part of me thinks that the reason why, um, the reason why the matchup went the way it did was because we basically built the same type of team for the same type of circumstance mm -hmm. um and, and we were close in many dimensions but by the end of the day he just didn't have an answer for he didn't have an answer for conley burdett forward right or charlie neal yeah right right right, right. so okay okay <laughs> Whatever. Yeah. but yeah so that's one that's one thing i wanted to note and then two the thing is, I, again, I feel for this dude because I just had the same thing happen to me, right? I played a bunch of series with uh, Manhattan, who was the dynasty team yeah. of our day. And every stinking year, it would be it would be like, you know, Russell's injured this year, or uh, or who's the guy that's always hurt? Bly Levin, right? Bly Levin missed like two World Series, I think, or two playoff series, whatever. Yeah. So it's just, it's maddening. Like you spend the entire season running this guy down. Like finally give me a chance. I finally get to the series and then you got to play him without your best guy. So, so I mean, 61. Okay. You know, I, I kind of feel like he gets a pass there. Yeah. If you don't have your top two starters, of course you're going to get beat, right? Yeah, you should yeah. get beat there. Yeah. Yep. So yeah, you, you, that's, that's an important landmark. So you, you moved into Frank Thomas Memorial Stadium, 1955 which is the that's the first year you won the championship right yep, i think you yep. won 55 so likewise so he moved he made the move so the colts started in wrigley uh they moved to comiskey in 1960 so literally the year after that so there is something to yeah. that so so yeah. um you know ballparks matter um but also you know there's a bunch of other factors going on here right like the the fact that uh free agency opened up you had some you had some you had a two types of trade right you had some like really good trades and also some just fortuitous ones. Right. So yes, exactly. So, so picking up guys that like Hamner, who was like a nobody who turns into yep. a monster yep. or, or picking up, um, yeah, Cox, Cox turned out to be really good. Right? Yeah. Cox. Yeah. And then, and then was it Amaros that you got in like the 44th pick of the reentry draft? Yes. Right? Probably just yes. a throwaway. Probably at the time you're like, Oh, oh I need another infield or I need another, uh, yes. to play left field. Okay, how about yeah. the Sandy Amaros guy? And then the guy goes on to hit, you know, 320. Well, that goes to a different, again, who knows who's, who's listening at this point, but that goes, that's another sort of pointer or lesson, right? That's another lesson. So, so, so for those picks, pick a guy, whatever you can, pick a guy that's like dominant in some 
thing, right? So Sandy Amros was an awesome defensive center or players, awesome defensive player. Yeah. And, and then you want a guy like if he can just catch one upgrade, all of a sudden he becomes playable. Right. So, yeah. so, so in those late picks, you're not picking, there's no, there's no player you're going to draft. That's, that's good. <laughs> what you're yeah. actually looking for is a player that can be good with one upgrade. You right? want a one trick pony. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Or and then, and maybe then he upgrade and then he suddenly he's two tricks and then he's then Yeah. He's, and all of a sudden you've got a guy on a minimum contract who can start for a World Series team, right? Yeah. So and, and actually you know, he turned out to be, I don't know, he must have I don't know if he got multiple upgrades or not, because he was a phenomenal again, he was excellent defensively and he was a legitimate leadoff guy. So so he, he might have uh you know got more than one upgrade. So as you said, I, I got lucky, but but like, yeah. but like you said, you kind of can create your own luck by just, it depends how you pick, right? If you, you yeah. pick guys that at least have a chance to develop into something, some of those guys will pay off, right? And I, I want to say Sandy Amaros, he was one of the stars of the 55 Brooklyn Dodgers, I think. I, if I recall, No, in real life, yeah. In real, in real life, life he was quite I think good. in real life, yeah, Sandy yeah. Amaros, I, I want to say he made some like circus catch in left field that like saved a game and then they went that sounds game. right yeah, yeah, yeah in totally 55 right. if i remember yeah. my ken burns baseball yeah, yeah um, that sounds right yeah and then of course going back to fake baseball sandy amaros and Minnie minoso are the co-owners of the right soon to be havana leones so right it yeah, all perfect. circles back fake baseball yep, yep, real baseball yep. future fake baseball um all right so this is great so we'll wrap it up here i think we'll put a bow around this we're going to call this an episode this is the 1961 like the first of four parts, I guess, what was on a, which we not necessarily four episodes, but we will progress the next episode. We do have Lance joining with joining us in a future episode, but um, this is our first cut at the look at the 61 to 64. What, what do you call a trilogy with four parts? Quadrennial? No. Quadrilogy? Quad pod? No, I don't know. <laughs> Quadrupod? Mm. Yeah, I don't know. Gastropod. Yeah. It's a gastropod. There you go, dude. Right. The there you go. So yeah. anyway, so yeah. our four-part, this is the first of our four-part trilogy. We'll just call it a four-part trilogy. <laughs> yeah, perfect. Dude, there's <laughs> so, so many of those. It has a nice ring to it. There's uh, so, so many of those. Yeah. yeah. So the next time we do this, we may or may not have Lance with us. He will definitely be joining us for a future pod, but we'll be taking a look at the 1962 season. Probably, I, I would expect next episode we can do 62 and 63. And, and then and then we can squeeze 64 and kind of a sum up into the episode after that. So until then, we'll say goodbye for now. And here's to fake baseball. Dang it, dang, dang, for ding it, dong, ding, blue moon.